ever so often in, I think we could probably say yearly now, a group comes up with a new name or new words to be named and put into our dictionary. I think it's kind of interesting that these names are kind of pulled from our culture and our society and who we are and where we're coming from. And I read some recently and I thought were quite interesting. One is Phoenicia. And it sounds like it's a noun that might be attached when describing a person who has misplaced their cell phone many times, phonesia. But that's not what it means. The definition attached to that word has to do with when a person makes a phone call, and as soon as the person they are calling answers the phone, they forget who they're calling. Probably never happened to you. If it has, then you have phonesia. Disconfect. It's a verb. It's the attempt to sterilize a piece of food or candy that has dropped to the floor by blowing on it. So today at lunch, if your little ones pull some of that gum off the underside of the table and you see them, that's called disconfecting. Blamestorming. This is usually used nowadays in our corporate world when there is something that's gone amuck. Instead of sitting around a table and trying to come up with an idea to fix it called brainstorming, they come up with blamestorming means they're trying to figure out who to blame. And our culture is good at pointing fingers and blaming folk. One more, it's called intaxation. It's the euphoria that you get when you get a tax refund until you realize that it was your money anyhow. <laughs> then it goes away. New words, new meanings, they kind of overpower us from time to time. And I think that's interesting because we've never heard them before. It's new. Why is it, I, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my brain around this, why is it that, that, that old words... Words that we're really familiar with, words that have been around for a long, long time, seem to lose their punch, or at least their familiarity, and they have a tendency to, to um, uh, pass in and out of who we really are. What I would like you to do for the next four weeks is to hear an old word And I want you to act as if you've never heard it before. As we pursue this word grace, I want it to be refreshed in your mind. I want it to be rekindled in your spirit. I want this to be known as a church that practices grace. Hopefully you are the type of Christian that wants to practice grace. We all want to receive grace, do we not? I mean, that's what we live for. However, grace can get messy. And for you to share grace with others, that's the path that we will take for the next few weeks. Not too long ago, there was a commercial for Kellogg's cornflakes. How many people grew up eating cornflakes? It was kind of a natural staple of who we were and what we were a part of. Not too long ago, Kellogg's, their people, their researchers, found out that uh, the, the people who grew up eating cornflakes haven't eaten cornflakes for quite a while. 
Anybody here remember the last time you had a little bowl of cornflakes? A few people, not too many of us. So they developed a new ad campaign. Their slogan was, Kellogg's cornflakes, taste them again for the very first time. Messing with our heads. I guess if I could do one thing today, I would like to to encourage you to, to think about grace and maybe think about again for the very first time. I want you to approach it as if you've never heard it. We use it from time to time, but we should never lose sight of its power, its significance, or its meaning. Hebrews twelve fifteen. The Bible simply says, see to it, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. And you see, without grace, which is connected to forgiveness, which is connected to confession and repentance, there can be no grace. So that's what we have to understand, and it would be my prayer today that no one misses the grace of God. You can miss a lot of things in church, and a lot of people do. But understand this, God wants his people to have a good or a better understanding of grace. Grace is a game changer. Grace grace makes everything different. If we're going to understand grace, we really can't understand grace unless we understand sin. And we all know sin, don't we? I mean, that's kind of part of who we are and. The Bible says that we have a sin problem in Romans 3.23. The Bible says that everyone has sinned and all have fallen short of God's standard. Some translations even say that they have fallen short of God's glorious or wonderful standard. And usually when we think of sin, we try to compare ourselves out of it. You know? Sure, I've sinned. But I'm not that bad, you know. Or we say things like, yeah, I've sinned, sure I have. Have you ever watched reality TV? I mean, those guys are crazy bad. So that's what we try to do. We try to compare ourselves, and we try to dismiss our sin by comparing ourselves to others. But do you know when we compare ourselves to others, that's sinning? It's called pride. It's also called self-righteousness. And a lot of people have a tendency to ride their high horse. When they think about sin, they like to point their fingers. They like to criticize and to throw rocks, but they don't want anybody pointing their fingers towards them or throwing rocks in their direction. The Bible says everyone has sinned. Everyone has fallen short of God's glorious standard. So one thing we have to understand for sure is that we're all sinners. Would we agree with that today? Believer, non-believer alike, reader of the scripture, non-reader alike, follower of Jesus, not so much. If you're here today, if you're on planet earth, you are a sinner. You may want to turn over to the book of Romans. We're going to go there here in just a few minutes, Romans chapter 5. But the Bible has a lot to say about sin, and it often compares the sin issue to a sickness. 
And most people, when they are sick, they tend to deny the fact, don't they? Because if you're sick, if you don't feel well, that means you have to change some things. You might have to go to the doctor. Anybody here like going to the doctor? No? We're busy. Doctors might give us medication or treatments, and we don't like to take that medication because they want want us to take it till when? Till we feel better? Till it's all gone. That might mean we need to change some lifestyle, some issues. So when we aren't feeling good, we try to deny it. Have you ever had a coworker or somebody show up who's not feeling well? What do we want them to do? Go away. You don't have to go home. Just go away. Got a couple grandkids in for a couple days, and one wasn't feeling too good Thursday night. This morning, little Maddie was up several times um, not feeling well throwing up. This morning when I left, she wanted to know if she could have a donut. <laughs> I don't think so. You know, we toss cookies, no donuts. That's not the way it goes. So she's trying to put on a persona this morning, but she's still not quite there. Pretending we aren't sick is not a very effective way to get better, is it? The Bible says we are all sinners, Or I guess we could say we are all sick, and here's the good news. Grace, this word, grace is the cure. Grace is the antidote. Grace is what makes the sick well, what makes the sinner whole. And it's connected to confession, repentance, and forgiveness. Romans 6.23 says, because we are sinners, because we are sick, the consequences or the payment is death. So we're all sinners here today, right? No exceptions in the house. If we're all sinners, that means we're all suffering from this sickness. That means that the consequences of our incurable sickness is death. Have you heard of the Zika, Zika virus? You know, when we were first told about that not too long ago, it was kind of a real, real scary thing. It seemed like that virus was a way far away from us. And the projections were no real cure for this thing. If it progresses, and then the charts began to come on the TV screen, how rapidly it would increase and cover the earth. Romans 5 begins to talk about this sickness called sin. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account that there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. You see, the Bible tells us that sin, the host, the carrier for this sickness was Adam. And once he sinned, sinned or the sickness entered the world, and it spread through this one man. 
but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? See, by the coming of Jesus, by his death on the cross, by his resurrection from the dead, by that grace, by that event, there was now hope given to a sick and dying world. Grace is the antidote. Grace is the cure. So there is a cure for this sickness, and it has to do with this act that Jesus performed on the cross. Verse 15, grace is the cure, the antidote for sin. The Bible says there, for the sin of one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater is God's grace. Grace and his gift of forgiveness to man through, his, through the other man, Jesus Christ. Paul is basically saying here that sin is deadly. It's powerful. But in his next breath, he says, grace is greater. Grace is more powerful. Grace is larger than sin. I don't know how many math majors we have in here today, but I do know there are some people who are very, very comfortable with math. Do you remember the greater than and the less than signs? You know? There's a lot about math I have forgotten. In fact, I am dreading the day when my grandkids come up and want me to sit down and take them through a issue, a problem in math. I know who I'm going to call. I know where you live. And you will get that call. You will help them because I cannot. But I do know the greater than, less than. Five eggs is greater than three. Grace is greater than our sin, our difficulty, our struggle. Grace is greater than whatever. Grace is greater than anything and everything. Whatever you want to put on the other side of the equation, grace is greater than that. Whatever sin just popped into your head right now, grace is greater. Whatever mistake you've ever made, any hard feelings you've ever had, any disgruntledness you've ever felt, grace is bigger and greater than that. Don't let anything separate you from the love of God. You see, grace is greater than that. Grace is bigger than that. But without grace, we have nothing. Without grace, there can be no forgiveness. Without grace, there can be no relationship that pleases the Father. Verse 16, the result of God's greater than one man's sin, Adam's sin leads to condemnation. Are you with me? Because we sin, because we have this sickness, we will die. Romans 8.1 says, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, there is no condemnation. There is no penalty. There is no negative consequences for those in Christ Jesus. Does that get your motor going this morning? I mean, even though we are sick and we have this this disease, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Grace is greater than our sin. Grace makes us right with God. Verse 17, for the sin of this one man, Adam, 
caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who will receive it. For all who receive grace through faith in Jesus Christ will live in triumph over sin and in triumph over death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Adam's mistake, Adam's sin, Adam's sickness brought condemnation. But one act of obedient righteousness from Jesus Christ, the Son of God, brings life for everyone. That's what grace does for us. Anybody here deserve the grace of God? Let me help you. No. You don't. I don't. None of us are worthy, are we? None of us are. But aren't you thankful for repentance and forgiveness and grace? Aren't you? Because regardless of where you come from, regardless of who you are, how you interact, God has a perfect plan for you. Don't miss this. Grace is greater than your sin. It makes you right with God. It gives you new life. It gives you second chances. Took two grandkids to Bob Walter's putt-putt yesterday. We redefined the phrase second chance. There were golf balls flying in all directions. Some we baptized right there on the spot. They floated here and there. I had kids chasing balls. We were on holes we weren't supposed to be on. But my goodness, we finished the game. And then we played again. But if the ball didn't go where they wanted it to go, they wanted a second chance to do over or try again. They redefined the word mulligan for you golfers. I just called it grace golf. Hit it. If you don't like it, hit it again. And then again. And little Maddie, she was just finally kicking the ball in the hole. That's the way she solved the problem. It makes you right with God. It gives you new life. It gives you a second chance. Sometimes grace gets missed. To really understand it, you have to look at what happens when it's absent. When it's absent in a church, when it's absent in your life, the church becomes ugly. People don't interact well with one another because they don't interact well with God. People say and do things they shouldn't say and do because there is an absence of grace in their life. Do you get that? You see, when there's no grace in a church, it just becomes a religion. Matthew 23, are you familiar with the chapter? My Bible calls it seven woes. And it has to deal with religion and the difficulties of legalism and the difficulties of misunderstanding. You see, religion is man's attempt to earn God's favor by keeping the rules, keeping the regulations, keeping everything legal the way it ought to be done in man's eyes. Here's how religion and grace compare. The key word for religion is do. You have to do more. You have to work harder. You have to work better. 
maybe then you'll make the cut, but it's all about doing something. That's religion. Grace is based on what has already been done for us. Done for us on the cross. Done for us by the Christ. Done for us in God's great plan, his great scheme of things. That's what makes the difference. The focus of religion is on the outward. The focus of grace is on the inward. The Bible says that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at what? At the heart. The foundation of religion is rules and legalism. Grace is founded on a relationship, a relationship that we have with God and Christ Jesus, and a relationship that we have with brothers and sisters in Christ. The motivation for religion is shame. People like to make us feel guilty and bad and as, we, as if we don't measure up or aren't worthy. Grace is motivated by, by gratitude. Religion leaves you feeling fearful or frustrated. And grace gives us a freedom because our sin problem has already been dealt with by Jesus on the cross. So let me give you three takeaways today when it comes to grace. And the first is this, the outcome of grace is love. Those of you who are reading through the Bible, you've already told me, man, the Old Testament is full of a lot of anger. There's a lot of killing going along, a lot of spilled blood, men and women and children. Even the animals were killed. Enter Jesus, enter the worthy lamb, the lamb that was sacrificed for you and me, the lamb who performed the unconditional love act. Religions tamper with the sin issue, but it's not an effective cure. Grace, even though I don't understand it, a free gift from God, hard to explain, but because of God's love for us, his creation, he offers us grace, forgiveness, a second chance, a do-over, a try again. You know, Paul uses the word grace when he writes those books of the Bible. He uses that word a hundred times. A hundred times he uses the word. What I think is interesting, Jesus never uses the word grace ever. Catch that? He never uses that word. Now, he always tells stories that show example of grace and loving kindness and forgiveness and mercy. So, the second takeaway, understanding grace is not done by explanation, but by experience. I mean, we can explain it, we can talk about it forever, but the best way to learn about grace is by experiencing grace. Does that make sense? Again, Jesus never uses the word, but he talks about the concept. I want us to real quickly look over at John, John chapter 8. I want to read, if I could, those first 11 verses. I'm starting with verse 2. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and sat down to teach. 
He set them down so he could teach. I, I think this is kind of unusual that the people gathered before dawn. Is that kind of weird? I mean, it doesn't talk about a time change or anything. Before dawn, early in the morning, the people gathered around because they wanted to hear Jesus teach. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in the act of adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses commands, uh, commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? So a group of angry men came busting into the room, and they began to disrupt everything. They had a woman, I have no idea, have no idea what she had on, but in my mind, I could almost see her dressed in some kind of sheet. I mean, they pulled her right out of bed. Now, I don't know where the guy was. Does that sound weird to you? I mean, where's he? That's for another day. All these guys, they bust into this room. They disrupt the service. And it doesn't say this here, but they're all carrying stones. We're going to gather that in just a few moments. The law of Moses says she needs to die. What do you say? Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. So what did Jesus write in the dirt? I don't know. Maybe he started writing the Ten Commandments. Maybe he started writing the names of men that this young lady had already been with before. Maybe he just started writing sins down. Or maybe he wrote down love and grace. I don't know what he wrote down. But he stood up and said, okay, 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 okay. Whoever is without sin, you go ahead and let it fly. Then he stooped down again and he wrote on the ground. Maybe he wrote down sin and then, I don't know, but I, I, one thing I'm going to ask Jesus when I get there someday, what in the world did you write in the dirt? At this, those who heard him began to go away one at a time. Catch this, the older ones first. Does that surprise anyone? Maybe they were older and what? Wiser? Maybe they realized that they were a little impulsive. The young boys, they were ready to rock, weren't they? Let me throw one. The old ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, woman, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no, sir. And he said, well, then neither do I condemn you. You go, you leave here and leave what? Leave your life of sin. Was she guilty? Was it shameful? Was it hard? Could Jesus, could he have condemned her? Did he say the word grace? What did he offer her? Grace and love and forgiveness. Now there's a condition. You go and you quit doing this. 
you go and you sin no more. But I want you to understand, I don't care what sin it is, what mistake, what difficulty you have had in the past, grace is greater than our sin. Don't miss that, friends. I want you to leave here understanding that. Caught in the act, she was knee-deep in guilt and shame, sin. It was the worst day of her life, wouldn't you say? But I think the worst day of her life became her best day. You know why? She received grace and love and forgiveness. Grace is based in love. Understanding grace is not really understood by explanation, but by experience. We can't really understand grace unless we understand sin. And one final takeaway, grace is greater than your deepest and darkest darkest secret. I wonder how many of us here today are still carrying secrets from our past. I wonder how many of us here today are still hurting, still broken from mistakes, from difficulties, from hardships that we have made. Confession, repentance, grace and forgiveness equals wellness. And part of that solution begins at baptism because that's where our relationship with Jesus really begins. God's grace is greater than your messed up foolish choice. The one thing that is contaminating your relationship with God and your relationship with others is your inability to let it go. Verses 10 and 11, Jesus deals with her guilt and shame by offering grace, a second chance, a do-over, a try-again, a new start. She is not just free from condemnation, but now she is free from the reality of death. You know what I find funny in the church? There are too many Christians who have been forgiven, blessed by God, who just don't live that way. I mean, they are angry. They are bitter. They are hard to get along with. And it's because I don't think they have a very good understanding of grace. They know guilt and shame and sin, but my prayer is that we will all encounter grace, not just experience it, but, but share it. Matt Chandler ministers, and he tells a story about his freshman year in college. He He and some of his friends had met a young single mom. Her name was Kim. And they decided they wanted to do their best to introduce her to Jesus, so they invited her to a Christian concert, and they all went as a group. And the concert, they said, was awesome. Everything went well till the preacher got up. And he began to preach about the difficulties of people's past and he talked about sexual things and how things weren't good in God's eyes and all the time he spoke Kim just sat with her head down and tears began to come down her cheeks because she had a pretty hard past what he did when he was preaching he took a rose and he said this is a beautiful rose everybody likes roses and he smelled that he showed its beauty and then he threw it out into the crowd and said just pass it around for a while and once you get done once I call for it back bring it back to me 
And he went on and he was attacking and attacking and attacking. He said they said, sounded angry and rude. When he asked for the rose back, it came back to him and some of the petals were gone, leaves were broken off, the whole stem was broken. And he said, who would want this rose now? And his friend Kim was weeping. And Matt said he wanted to stand up and say, Jesus would. Jesus would want that rose now. And I think that's what I want you, my friends, to understand today. We're all beautiful roses, aren't we? Sometimes life is hard and we think it attacks our beauty, our fragrance. In the eyes of the world that look at those kind of things, they think we're worthless, worth nothing. But I want you to understand today that you are valuable in the eyes of God. And it's because of you that he sent his one and only son to die for your sin, for your shame, for your mistakes. That's called what? Grace. My guys are ready with communion this morning. And I want to extend this time if I can do that. I think communion is the most important part of our service. Each one, when you came in today, you received a note card, did you not? Does anyone not have a note card? I have some extras back in the back. Note card and pen. Here's what I would like you to do today. I, I, we, we have talked about grace, and I want to explain it as best I can, but I want you to experience that too. And I know this is going to be awkward. I know this is going to make you feel uncomfortable, but I want you to take those note cards in your pen, and I want you to write down maybe some things that you've been carrying with you for a long time. Maybe you still don't feel good about a failed marriage. Or maybe you don't have a very good relationship with your family or with your church family. Or maybe there are some issues that you've just not been able to let go. I want you to take just a few moments and I want you to write that thing or those things down on your card. And if anyone needs another card, I can put one in your hands. When you're finished, I want you to take that card, I want you to fold it, I want you to crumple it up, whatever, because when you leave here today, you're going to throw that card in trash cans back here by the doors. But what I want you to do during this time of communion, I want you to lift up in prayer those things or that thing that you have written on your card, and I want you to ask God for forgiveness. I want you to ask God that he might bless you with grace and mercy and kindness so that you can finally let it go. You see, there's a lot of Christians walking around holding on to the past, and folks, we need to let it go. I don't care who you are in this room, I'm willing to bet the ranch there is something that you have done, maybe years ago, or maybe even yesterday, that you need to let go of. There can be no grace without confession, without repentance. And maybe that starts today, in this holy place through your time of communion. And then you thank God for his plan. You thank Jesus for going to the cross for you. And you thank him for grace and mercy and love and kindness. Could you do that for me today? Could we, I know it's a weird exercise. Let's pray. Father God, this is your place. Oh, man, we have heard about... We have heard about grace, we have talked about it, we have prayed about it for years, but sometimes it's just hard accepting it. And in the the weeks to come, we will find out it's even harder to share grace with someone that we feel as though has hurt us. Jesus, we thank you so much 
for obeying your Father so that we might experience grace. We know we are not worthy. We know that we are sick. But with you, we know there is a cure. And because of that, we have hope. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.